Father, we just read uh, of how your spirit being poured out transformed lives. And we pray that as we come to your word, uh, your spirit would be at work in each of our hearts and minds, transforming us, that we would recognise Jesus and delight to praise him and live for him. Father, we pray that your word would speak into our lives in such a way uh, that it would comfort us where we need comforting, but also challenge us where we need to be changed, that we might become more like Christ. Change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The Australian uh, evangelist, academic, podcaster, pretty much everything, uh, John Dixon, uh, he shares a uh, response to calling all people to serve the one God. So Dixon was in a cafe uh, and he was telling a friend uh, what his church was doing to promote Jesus in their community. And he noticed a couple of tables away there was a woman uh, listening intently. He figured, you know, she's paying that much attention, she's probably a fellow Christian, he talked on. A few minutes later, uh, she rose, she paid her bill, she walked straight toward him and in a loud, clear voice she said, so you want to convert the world? How dare you? And stormed off. Now her boldness is rare. Not many people are going to do that in a cafe. Uh, But the feeling is not rare. There are some in our community who think calling everyone, calling all people to trust in the one true God is the height of arrogance. That it's religious pride. Uh, And with that, along with disliking religious pride, there's this fear of what that might do. That there's this fear in our community that one true God, that claim is divisive. Uh, So a survey of some 20-somethings and their objections to Christianity got this response. Religious exclusivity is not just narrow, it's dangerous. Religion has led to untold strife, division and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. And if Christians continue to insist they've got the truth, and if other religions do this as well, the world will never know peace. That's one person's fear. See, the claim to one true God is not popular. Uh, There is that fear that it it will breed arrogance and pride or or division or maybe all those things. And can I say, um, there is some grounding for that fear. Uh, We need to be honest. Uh, There are some spiritually proud people who claim to follow Jesus, but they look down on unbelievers in such a way as though faith was something um, you you could only have if you're a better kind of person, if you're more moral, if you're more spiritual, if you're smarter. There is that kind of religious pride around. And we need to admit, churches have been at points responsible for sowing division, for entrenching hatred, for coercing the powerless rather than speaking to them, persuading them in love. So there are some good reasons why our community and people fear absolute claims about God. Sad reality is that churches and people claiming Christ have misrepresented the one true God. Because if you rightly understood, if we rightly grasp what it means to have one God for all people, what it would really do is destroy arrogance, get rid of every vestige of pride. And if we really understood and rightly see it, one God for all people would actually create unity across divisions. And a right understanding of that is revealed in these early chapters of the Bible. We're going to see it tonight. Uh, So a key truth as we look at Genesis 10 and 11, there is one God for all nations. One God for all the nations. Um, We read only of the incident at Babel, but Babel is there as part of a, a larger story explaining God's relationship to all people. All people in our diversity of both language and culture. So go 
just a page before, chapter 10. Chapter 10 begins with, if you've been with us, a familiar section marker. 10 verse 1, this is the account of Shem, Ham and Japheth. Uh, Noah's sons who themselves had sons after the flood. This is the account of... Um, that has marked new sections before in Genesis. It's a little, little literary detail saying it's a new thing's begun. So it marked back in ch- chapter 2 verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And what I've been saying is that phrase, this is the account of, is best understood as the development that arises from, or this is what flows out of that event. And so in 2 verse 4 it described, this is what flowed out of God's decision to create. And it was used again in chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1, what flowed from Adam's line was a continuation of people as God's image despite our sin. And then it's used again in 6, verse 9. Used in 6, verse 9 to describe what flowed, what came out of Noah walking faithfully with God, that all creation continued to exist despite our sin. And then in 10, verse 1, We get here, 10 verse 1, what flows from Noah's sons is human diversity under God despite our sin. And so these chapters are about, not not just talking about the times of old, it's about explaining our world, making sense of our experience. But even better, what these chapters do, they point to how God will heal the terrible wickedness of pride and division. And it centres on that key truth that there is one God for all nations. Uh, Three parts to it as we look at it. First, God made every nation. Cultures and languages are all God's design. So if you see in chapter 10, there's a little heading above it, uh, the table of nations. Now, can I just say that none of those headings are in the original. Uh, The publishers put it in, but it's quite helpful here. Um, It saves us reading a lot of complex names. Uh, There we go, the table of nations. Um, Genesis 10 is a carefully crafted explanation of all the different races and tribes and cultures and language that fill God's world. Remember back in chapter 1 verse 28, God made humanity that we might fill the earth and subdue it. You know, that we would go, we would cover the earth, that we would not stay in the one spot. And after the flood, chapter 9 verse 1 and again chapter 9 verse 7, Noah is told and his sons are told twice, be fruitful, increase your number, fill the earth. You know, go, spread out. Chapter 10 is that command lived out. Okay, so in, in, um, just look at chapter 10, at paragraph there covering verses 2 to 5. Just a little paragraph there, we've got the head, heading there, the sons of Japheth. And so we meet Japheth's sons. From Israel's perspective, they spread to the edges of the known world, to the east and the west and the north. And in 10 verse 5, a little summary, verse 5, they spread into different nations with distinct languages. And then we get the next son, uh, verses 6 to 20. The next section is Ham's sons are listed. And from Israel's perspective, they fill the known world to the south. And again, uh, if you flick the page, verse 20, climaxes with the same point. They spread into different nations and distinct languages. And finally, uh, verses 21 to 31, we get Sham, Shem's uh, sons. And, and the, Bible, the Bible's plot actually follows his family line because it's the Israelites that come from Shem. Uh, and again, notice at the end of that section, verse 31, Shem's line produces different languages and nations. See what's going on here? Genesis 10 is not an itemised list of every culture and tribe in the world. You know, Australia doesn't get a mention, okay? Um, but in a literary sense, it is a complete list. There are 70 sons listed. You can count later. Um, that number is created by careful editing. It's crafted. 
See, some family lines only follow two generations. Others go all the way to six generations. Um, This is not exhaustive, it's representative. It's symbolically saying it's totally complete. So 10 times 7 is a large amount of the perfect number. That's that's the point, large amount of the perfect number. In Exodus chapter 1, 70 is the number of Jacob's descendants taken to Egypt. Uh, Exodus 24, 70 is the number of elders appointed to lead God's people. Uh, Luke chapter 10, 70 is the number of disciples sent out by Jesus. He sends out a whole new nation, a whole new world population, so to speak. He's starting something new and fresh. The 70 of Genesis 10 says God made a totally complete people to fill his earth. But here's the most important bit, once you notice, he made them diverse. In case you missed it when it said it in verse 5 and then in verse 20 and then in verse 31, he tells you again in verse 32. A recap, verse 32, the distinct nations spreading over the earth in the wake of God's salvation from the flood. The diversity. See, God made every nation. Cultures, languages, they are God's good design. What's it mean for us? Well, it means it is good, it is right, it is proper to honour distinctions between people. We should actually delight in the distinctions between people, cultural difference. Uh, and, and we delight in God's creativity, don't we, all the time? You know, we, we can delight in the, the beauty of the ocean as well as the splendour of the hills and the mountains and we don't have to play them off against each other. We don't have to go, oh, one's better than the other. We can just go, they're both great. And in the same way, we should delight in the distinctives of one culture without denigrating another. Uh, you know, we can do it in all sorts of ways. Our church does it. You know, one way we do it, our 11.30 congregation. Uh, if you've never been there, hey, call in, have a visit. A delightful representation of the nations, people from every continent except Antarctica. Um, when the penguins turned up, we'll be complete. Uh, but this delightful, you know, the difference there, um, we do it in other ways. Uh, our acknowledgement of country that plays on the screen before the service uh, every week. If you're an early you know, arriver, you've, you've seen this before. A small nod to this truth. If you haven't noticed it, let me read it. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Wadi Wadi people of the Darawal Nation. On this land, they continue their cultural, spiritual, educational practices, and we pay our respect to them as we seek to do the same in our community and for our children. And as we gather on these ancestral lands, we also acknowledge our God and Heavenly Father who made the heavens and the earth and to whom we are responsible for the current stewardship of this land that has been entrusted to us. It is a small way that we honour the indigenous amongst us and the God who made us distinct. He didn't just make the heavens and the earth, he made the nations, the tribes, the languages. It is his, his diverse design that should be the framework for you thinking about other cultures, different people. It's God, God's good design that you delight in the nations. Secondly, with it, God made every nation despite us. His purposes are not prevented by our defiance. So Genesis 11, 1 to 9, we read it. It's a radical break in style. This is a companion piece to chapter 10. Chapter 10 explained the nations spreading in obedience to God. The Babel incident explains the nations spreading in result of defiance and sin. And they hold together in the same way that we make sense of the cross. Yeah, we read it in Acts 2. In Acts 2, Jesus is crucified according to God's plan. God is the author of the cross. 
But in the same verse, Acts 2 verse 23, Jesus is crucified by wicked men. Our sin authors the cross. See, at the cross, God fits our defiance into his purposes. Well, he did the same at Babel in forming the nations. And so 11 verse 1, the whole world has a common language and speech. And in this context, human unity there is a symbol of their defiance. And it's added to verse 2, that east would move in verse 2. You remember, Adam and Eve were cast from God's presence to the east. And then Cain went further east of Eden, heading east to Shinar, which is modern Iraq, the the original Babylon. Here is a, a symbol of humanity together moving further from God. But worse still, notice the way they talk to one another. Notice their plan in verse 4. 11 verse 4, their rallying cry, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heavens that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. There are two things driving uh, this building project, two desires. One, to defy God and two, to replace God. So humanity there unites to defy God by not spreading out, not doing what they were asked to do, go fill the earth and subdue it. No, no, no. Rather than rejoice in differences and distinctives that he's blessed with, no, no, let's build a city, they say. Let's wall ourselves in. Let's become a monochrome culture where everyone has to be like me. It's the same spirit that still sees cultural clashes. You know, white Australians with indigenous or Uyghurs in China, Russians in Ukraine. And with that, humanity seeks to not only defy, but replace God. They want to reach the heavens. There is a longing in every human heart for something higher, better and stronger. They are not content to be God's image, God's creature. They want to dwell in divine space. See, that's where they want to build. They want to build and reach the heavens. They want to do it for a name for themselves. They want a, they want a reputation. They want a weight of glory that God cannot remove from them. They want to establish their greatness in opposition to God, as a rival, rather than in submission to his plans. And in God's mercy, he doesn't allow it. Verse 6 is an act of mercy. Verse 6, God knows what we would accomplish if we combine the skills that he's entrusted to us with, uh, as one humanity with that desire to remove and replace the God who is love. How dangerous it would be, how disastrous it would be. And so in God's mercy, he comes down. He comes down twice. Verse 5, he comes down because even the might of human industry cannot get close to God. You know, they're building this tower to the heavens and we're meant to... It's kind of comical in verse 5 that he's got to come down and see what they're doing. You know, he's that far above our best effort in going. He goes, oh, is that what you... Oh, I hadn't noticed. Um, And then in verse 7, he comes again. The Trinitarian God comes down again to limit our damage. And in verse 9, humanity gets scattered but it is an ugly scattering. Rather than us spreading for the glory of God, caring for his world, delighting in the cultures that he designed, we're scattered in confusion in verse 7. Confusion again in verse 9. Fear. This barrier goes up between tribes and nations. A fear of the other. See, the real danger of arrogance and division doesn't come from there being one God for all nations. No, it's every nation wanting to be that God. It's every person trying to replace that God. See, God made every nation despite us. Because here's the sad reality about you and me. We distort the goodness of God's creativity. You know, cultures clash and people get excluded 
and people trying to assert dominance when we defy God. That arrogance and division flourish because we want to get God out of his rightful place. Tim Keller notes from Babel, every culture that is not based on God will make an idol, an ultimate value, out of something else. And that idol will necessarily divide. If my highest love is my family, then I will privilege my family over others. If it is my business, my racial group, or my individual selfish interests, I will privilege my race, myself, over other races and selves. And the result of this sin is that we're all under the influence of it. We are blind and deaf to the full humanity of people of other communities. Get that? Sin makes us blind and deaf to the full humanity of those who are other. We think somehow they are less. Somehow they are different. We distort the goodness of God's creativity. So that that arrogance, that division, that conflict is a result of us rejecting him. And here's the saddest bit. The church is not immune. The church has been guilty of forcing cultural assimilation that we might make a name for ourselves. Uh, Michael Jensen shares a a friend's story. It's not his story. It's someone else's story um, of what is personal that has been done on a bigger scale. But this is the personal. And as I share it, um, it's going to be extreme, uh, but it says something about what's going on in all our hearts. So be careful. Listen. Um, This is the friend's story. My mum is from the Philippines and she moved into the Penrith area around five years ago. She started attending a local Anglican church and everyone there was, probably still is, white. The first women's Bible study she went to, she was told by one of the women in the group, don't take this the wrong way, I just prefer to associate only with white people. And nobody said anything to defend my mum. And she didn't even say anything to defend herself. And she kept going. And she even started serving, mostly the jobs others didn't want to do. I don't know why, because she's a better woman than I am, I guess. Or worse, she's used to it. You and I know such racism is intolerable, indefensible, anywhere. But isn't it even worse in the life of church? And we make sense of this from Babel. You know, this cultural, linguistic differences that have shifted, rather than being a source of delight, they've become a source of deep fear and confusion for humans. This, this terrible inclination we have, and it's in our hearts, that, that, that we want to get closer to those we see as us, and go over and against those we see as them. But thankfully, God's purposes are not prevented by our defiance and sin. And so thirdly, God blesses every nation. He works through one for all. We're starting to see how the healing will happen. God comes down. He comes down as an act of grace. He comes down not just to limit sin, but to repair it. So 11 verse 10, we didn't read this far, but 11 verse 10, we get another new section marker. This is the account of Shem's family line. This is what flows from Shem. And what flows from Shem is God working through one for all. So we see the line, read on, child after child is born until we come, in verse 26, uh, to Abram. 11 verse 26, Abram is born. And then in 12 verse 1, the Lord sends Abram out. He says, go, go, Abram, spread out, scatter, go. And the Lord invites Abram, trust me, in 12 verse 2, trust me that I will make your name great. You don't have to make your name great. You don't have to prove yourself. I will make you great. 
trust me and don't stay go um and and through the lord lifting abraham abram in 12 verse 3 um, not only abram will be blessed all will be blessed all nations will be blessed all peoples see god comes down and he does what we as humans can't do even if we banded together as one he comes down that he might lift us up to the glory of heaven god works through the one to bless all not by crushing our differences rather redeeming them he works he reworks our distinctives he redirects us that we might honor his name rather than having to make a name rather than having to prove ourselves that's what we read in pentecost Acts 2, sacrifice of the one, the Lord Jesus, brings forgiveness and transformation. It makes it possible. And in Acts 2, verse 21, all, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus is saved. It is in his name that we are restored to God and we are reconnected to others, not by crushing one another and saying, you've all got to be like me. No, no, no. Acts 2, everyone heard the gospel in their own tongue that day. And everyone was able to respond in worship within their distinctiveness. And Acts shows in a small part what Revelation 7 affirms into, into eternity. Uh, Revelation 7, we get this picture. A great multitude are gathered from every nation and tribe and people and language. And what are they doing? They're all united in praising Christ. They're all enjoying the blessing of being in his presence, the goodness, the delight of the diversity under his rule. See, in eternity, our, our differences remain. Our culture, our language, our identity continue in the new heavens and earth. Our distinctiveness, distinctives though, are, are reworked for the glory of God and the good of one another. There is one God for all the nations, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he blesses all through that one. And so what, what happens here is God actually overcomes the pride and the fear that excludes others by meeting your deepest desire in Jesus. So when you've got Jesus and your identity is in him, when his name is your name, you don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to make a name for yourself. You're actually secure. And when you've got him, you don't have to fear anyone else. Uh, Andrew Moody puts it helpfully. He speaks about it, that desire in all of us um, uh, uh, to ascend, to, to reach the heavens. And he says this, Jesus has really ascended. He has cut a hole through the floor of heaven and been enthroned with our God. And because of that, we can go there too. And our longings can find their true end in the presence of our Father. So our longings, our deepest longings can find uh, their satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that transforms us when we realize that when you've refined your identity in Christ, suddenly there is healing. Suddenly humanity can be set free. And it'll heal us in two ways. The first way... God heals, the one God heals our pride. He comes down to lift us up. So the evidence that you really trust Jesus is your humility. Now, rather than you having to prove yourself to others, rather than having to kind of create a name for yourself, you're happy to receive a name. You don't have to kind of build it with others. Because the Bible reminds us all you cannot work your way to heaven. No matter how clever you are, how skilled you are, um, how powerful you are, how good you are, you cannot force your way into the presence of God. And if you rely on yourself, all will happen is you'll be cast out, you'll be scattered. The only way you will enjoy eternal glory is by Jesus lifting you up. By no longer you trying to build and care about your name, but you just live for his reputation and are happy to receive it. And when you do that, um, what it will do is heal your pride. Pride in every form, you've got nothing to prove. Um, and it means, you know, when you, when you know you're a sinner saved by grace, that desire to convert the world is not arrogance. You know, with John Dixon at the cafe, it's not arrogance, it's just one beggar telling another beggar where you can find the food. 
It's hugely humbling. Uh, Chuck Colson, uh, he was once the special counsel to the US president. Uh, he was known as Richard Nixon's hatchet man. He was the evil genius of an evil administration, some called him. Uh, he went to prison for his role in the Watergate scandal. If you don't know the Watergate scandal, Google exists. Um, but something happened to Colson to make him confess to crimes he wasn't being investigated for. Okay, Jesus humbled him. That was a transformation. So he had this inner emptiness and a huge pride. Uh, and he went and visited a friend of his, Tom Phillips. Uh, Phillips was this dynamic, self-made man like Colson, but something had changed in this man. And Colson asked him you know, about this peace he had, and Phillips looked away. He's got to be the kind of least enthusiastic evangelist you'll ever meet. He looked away, he didn't even look him in the eyes, he just said, oh, I've accepted Jesus Christ and committed my life to him. That was it. Didn't go on. Um, Colson had never heard anyone in his kind of circle talk like that, and it sat with him for like three months. You know, he, just, he didn't pursue it then, they kept up. But three months later, he, he asked Phil, explain it. And Phillips read to him from C.S. Lewis on Pride, that a proud man is always looking down on others, and a proud man is unable to see the immeasurably superior above him, the, you know, God. And Colson knew he's that proud man. Colson knew everything he'd done to you know, serve the country was really about serving himself, building his own name. And he left Phillips home, he sat in the car, he wept, He called out to Christ for mercy. And finding that forgiveness, finding this new status, a new name in Jesus actually set Colson free, that freed him that he could confess to crimes that he wasn't even being investigated for. He didn't have to prove himself, defend himself. Um, The pride, the arrogance was gone. Um, He served his time and afterwards he dedicated his life to, to prison ministry. See, that's what a right understanding of the one God will do. It will heal your pride. You have nothing to prove. You're so secure in him. You don't have to assert yourself against God, against others. You're free to serve. And the second way it will heal you, one God heals our racism. He came down for all. So the evidence we trust God is we honour difference. Um, Rather than fueling division, a right understanding of one God will remove the barriers. Galatians 3.28 Galatians 3.28 declares there is neither Jew nor Greek in Christ. We are all one. Don't mishear this. It is not saying that identity markers don't exist. Look around the room. We don't look the same. It's not saying that. It is saying that they no longer separate. It is saying your culture isn't more or less important than another's. It is saying we reach across the divides in Jesus' name and we don't have to crush the other person. We don't have to compel them, be like me. He came down for all, that he might unite us in our difference, not press us through a cookie cutter. So we've got to recognise there is no neutral, cultural-free, pure expression of Christian faith. You know, the Bible clearly says um, you've got to use music to praise God. But as soon as we choose a particular song or musical genre, we've brought our culture in. And as soon as we do those kind of things, we're bringing some in and excluding others, we've got to recognise that. And with that, we've got to add to that, combine the knowledge um, with that, the the knowledge of the God who came for all. And and if we do that well, we can start to be, the church can be the place that loves others without crushing them. We can experience a unity and love that is deeper than our divisions. Uh, An old church of mine had a Farsi-speaking congregation of Iranian refugees. um, And I had a privilege um, that they would let me come and preach to them. Uh, and their English was limited but significantly better than my Farsi, so they let me preach in English. Um, 
and we accommodated for one another. You know, I would say a line um, and then my translator would say something and when it was silent, I figured he was finished and so I'd say something again and every now and then we'd stop and he'd ask me what I meant because I wasn't clear enough, his English didn't... Um, and afterwards, after that, that we, we would they, you know, chat together. They would speak in their broken English to me because I was weak and had no Farsi and we enjoyed a big Iranian spread of food and it was delightful. We served each other because we had a deeper unity in Jesus. And I can only remember two words uh, in Farsi from a, a song, um, Issa Khodava. Um, for those who speak Farsi, come and correct me later. But I think Isa Chodava, Jesus, Lord of all. And that was our little snapshot of heaven. It was this little picture of how you know, Jesus can heal that kind of fear of the other within as those differences are reworked for the glory of God. So the claim of one true God might not be popular, but it should be, because that is what our, our city, our nation needs, because it is in one, knowing that one God for all nations that we will find healing and blessing. Let me pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we praise you as the maker of heaven and earth, the maker of cultures and language and people. We praise you as the God who delights in diversity and brings us together under the rule and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray uh, that his rule and love would rule our hearts, drive out every form of pride, every fear of the other, that we might delight together to be your people. And we pray uh, that the truth of Christ's rule uh, would spread out and unite our city, unite our nation, unite our world. In Jesus' name, amen.